All right, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Unraveling Political Theory, brought to you by The Last American Vagabond. I'm your host, Tim, and joining me, as always, is Keith Preston from AttackTheSystem.com. Keith, how are you doing today? I'm good. Good to have you back. So, so far, we've talked about cult cultural Marxism and neoliberalism, so if you've not checked out those yet, please do. Um, you can go back through the YouTube channel and find some of the other ones. Also, a lot of these are going to be on iTunes soon for download, but we haven't, we actually used all of our space on our iTunes account, so we haven't got them up yet, but they will be available on iTunes shortly, and we'll make sure to put a link in there when they are. So anyways, without further ado, let's start right up here. So the topic today is neoconservatism. Um, I'm sure a term that many of us have heard, but honestly, I didn't even know the roots of it until I started to research for this uh, podcast. So first question, Keith, what is neoconservatism and where did it come from? And could you specifically talk about how it consisted of leftists who defected from the left and came to over to the right which was conservative conservatism at the time. And one last point in there. Also, how did Trotskyism and the New Deal play into all this? Well, the term neoconservative has been used in a lot of different contexts, but what's important for our purposes is to understand that there is a movement of people who specifically identify themselves as neoconservatism and it uh, has very easily traceable roots. Um, as you mentioned, uh, neoconservatism goes all the way back to the 1930s. Uh, I mean, that's not where the term came from, but uh, in, back in the 1930s, you had an American uh, Trotskyite movement. Uh, Leon Trotsky was a communist. Uh, he was an associate of Lenin and one of the uh, instigators of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. Uh, when Lenin died, there was a power struggle for who was going to succeed Lenin. Uh, as the world knows, it was Joseph Stalin who got the upper hand, but there were other rivals as well, and one of them was Leon Trotsky. Uh, Trotsky was sent in, out of the Soviet Union into exile by Stalin uh, and eventually assassinated by, by Stalin's uh, people. But um, Leon Trotsky became a kind of dissident communist who was like an, uh, uh, an anti-Stalin communist. And there was an actual Trotskyite movement uh, around the world, and there still is today, and there's all, all kinds of uh, Trotskyite splinter groups that still exist. Uh, but the essence of Trotskyism is that this is a form of revolutionary Marxism-Leninism that is anti-Stalinism in the sense that uh, during the 1930s, the Stalinists and the Soviet Union created a vast network of communist parties, uh, satellite communist parties throughout the world and other countries, including in the United States. But there was also a rival movement, a rival communist movement that was led by Leon Trotsky, and they also had their own organizations and their own tendencies. And there were groups like that in the United States as well, under the leadership of guys like uh, Max Shackman and, and James Cannon and, and folks like that. Now, uh, how this leads into neoconservatism is that a lot of these uh, former Trotskyites, former associates of guys like Max Shackman, underwent uh, a 30-year trajectory where they gradually abandoned the far left and started moving rightward. 
uh, in the period between the 1930s and the 1960s, uh, there were a number of Trotskyites uh, like Mike Shackman who eventually became more and more conservative with regards to their views of the Soviet Union and less and less influenced by things like Marxism. You know, they started off as opposition communists, uh, Trotskyites in the 1930s. Uh, by the 1960s, they had become Cold War liberals. They were uh, essentially uh, hawkish on foreign policy with regards to the Cold War with the Soviet Union. Uh, domestically, they still favored social democratic uh, economic policies and were consequently big fans of things like Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. Um, and they also uh, became increasingly opposed to the new left when it emerged in the 1960s. And the reason the these former Trotskyites uh, turned social democrats, turned uh, Cold War liberals were against uh, the new left is a number of reasons. First, the new left was against the Cold War for the most part. Uh, they tended to support third world uh, anti-colonial movements, particularly those of a Marxist bent against Western imperialism. Uh, they also, uh, in many instances, sided with the Palestinians against Israel. And keep in mind, this is around the time of the uh, 1967 war when, when that was uh, you know, becoming a major issue internationally. Uh, beyond that, uh, many of the old guard uh, socialists and communists from the 1930s and 40s had been somewhat socially conservative. And like many other social conservatives, they were opposed to what they considered to be the excesses of the new left in terms of drugs and sex and homosexuality or things of that nature. Um, and they also uh, had, you know, some more somewhat more conservative views about race as well. The neoconservatives were not uh, segregationists or, or racists uh, in the traditional American sense, but they did dislike the black power movement. Uh, there were conflicts uh, between them and the, and the black power movement because within the black power movement, there were certain strains that were also, also anti-Semitic. Um, uh, one of the defining characteristics of the neoconservatives was their very pro-Israel stance, and that stems from the fact that most of the founders of neoconservatism were Jewish people, uh, uh, ethnically, so they were, were very, uh, always very, very strongly pro-Israel, and, and that's continued to be probably their most important characteristic uh, ever since then. Um, so because of all of this, what happened is that you had this new movement of intellectuals, former socialists, former Trotskyites, former Marxists, who became uh, conservatives essentially, but they always considered themselves to be a different type of conservative. Um, they were they did not identify themselves with the throne and altar traditionalism that defines european type conservatism uh european type conservatism is either the uh, you know, the, the throne and altar monarchist traditionalism or it's the uh, the the hobbs uh schmidt um view of conservatism you know re that is realism you know that you know, Machiavellianism, you know, life is just, you know, society, civilization is a brute struggle for uh, survival of the fittest. Instead, they advocated uh, a type of social democratic conservatism, uh, a type of conservatism that would be fine with civil rights and the welfare state and all of these kinds of things, but would be very hawkish on foreign policy with regards to the Cold War, would be very pro-Israel with regards to Middle East policy, uh, and would be socially conservative with regards to, uh, in, in comparison to the new left. 
Uh, you know, they were not big on um, the what they viewed as the sexual libertinism of the new left. They were not big on the drug culture. Uh, they tended to have a less favorable view of the uh, pro of, of the um, of legalized abortion, all of these kinds of socially conservative issues. So what happens in the 1970s is that at this point, you know, in the 1960s, the neocons or the people who became the neocons were still on the far left end of the Democratic Party. They had an organization called Social Democrats USA, which was basically an organization for social democrats that were foreign policy conservatives. Um, they were on the far left end of the Democratic Party. They supported Hubert Humphrey and politicians like that. Back then, the the, uh, the anti-imperialist left used to call them the State Department Socialists uh, because they were social democrats with this kind of pro-State Department view uh, during the Vietnam War. Um, but over time, as the new left started to uh, work its way into the uh, Democratic Party, the neocons started moving to the right. They started moving towards republicanism. Um, in the 1970s, they started moving closer to the conservative movement. Now, the conservative movement was something different than the neocons. The, what Americans think of as, a, as the conservative movement is rooted in uh, the work of William F. Buckley and thinkers like that back in the 1950s. Um, and, and they started this uh, conservative movement that was going to be hawkish in foreign policy, you know, pro-Cold War, economically conservative, uh, you know, against uh, the welfare state, against taxes and regulation and all of that, and socially conservative, you know, with the, uh, you know, uh, morally conservative, if you will. Um, and uh, many, many of these uh, conservatives that, that came from that trend were um, Catholic traditionalists, Brent Bozell, William F. Buckley himself, people of that nature. So what happened in the, in the uh, 70s is that the neoconservatives and the conservative movement started to converge. And both of these became important parts of the Reagan coalition that emerged when Reagan was elected president in 1980. You know, the Reagan coalition itself was a, a mixture of the neoconservatives, the traditional conservatives, the Buckleyites, the foreign policy hawks, the big business conservatives, the religious right, um, the, the right-wing libertarians, you know, all, all of these things converged to form the Reagan coalition. And so when the Reagan administration and the subsequently the George H.W. Uh, Bush administration were in power from 1980 to 1992, some of these folks started working their way into key positions of influence in the federal government. Uh, one important one was Elliot Abrams. Elliot Abrams is the son-in-law of Norman Podhoretz and Midge Decker, uh, who were two of the most important founders of neoconservatism. Um, if you have to identify two names that were important uh, as far as the founding of neoconservatism, it would be Irving Kristol, who was a former Trotskyite, who actually coined the term neoconservatism to call it up in order to describe his own movement. Uh, his son is William Crystal, who Bill Crystal, who is now a well-known neoconservative. He's the editor of uh, of uh, Weekly Standard. You know, he, he you see him in all the neocon press outlets nowadays. He's a very well-known person. Um, the um, and the other important person besides Irving Crystal would have been Norman Podhoretz. Norman Podhoretz is the editor of um, Commentary Magazine and has been for years. Uh, and that magazine has always been really the epicenter of. Uh, of uh, the neoconservative movement. Uh, so these two guys were really the main uh, figures in the intellectual development of neoconservatism. Uh, Norman Podhoretz, his wife was named Midge Dector. Uh, Midge Dector 
uh, was a, a journalist who was uh, also an influential neoconservative. But their son-in-law, uh, Norman Podhoretz and Mitch Decker, their son-in-law is Elliot Abrams. He was a, a State Department official during the Reagan administration. He played a prominent role in the Iran-Contra affair. I think he was eventually brought up on some criminal charges because of his role in that. Uh, he makes an appearance again during the George W. Bush administration as well in the 2000s. Um, but it was in the 80s that these neocons started to uh, work their way into the federal government and into the upper levels of the Republican Party. And what happened was they, they essentially took over the Republican Party, at least in, at least as far as its intellectual leadership went. Um, they started moving closer and closer to the military industrial complex because they had the same goals in terms of, uh, you know, maybe not, maybe for different reasons, but they had the same goals as far as permanent expansion of the warfare state. Uh, they started to openly call for the creation of an American empire. Um, in fact, William Crystal uh, called, he created a coined a term for that that he called uh, benevolent hegemony, the idea that the American empire is going to uh, rule the world in this benevolent hegemonic way, kind of a Pax Americana. Um, and all of the, uh, and also you start to see the uh, neocons becoming a lot closer to a lot of the big business funded think tanks uh, in Washington, the Heritage Foundation and groups like that. So the neo neoconservatives essentially took over the conservative movement and the Republican Party uh, on the activist level and, and uh, intellectual level, uh, with big business money, with the aid of their uh, of the military industrial complex, you know, in, in collusion with the standard uh, corporatist uh, politicians that dominate the, the Republican Party, your your George Bush, you know, Mitt Romney types, um, you know, that's really how. The, that, that's really the story of how the Republican Party came to be what it is today, or at least it was, what it was until um, until Donald Trump came along. Uh, but yeah, that that's the you know that really has defined what conservatism or republic what the Republican Party has been in the United States since the eighties. Yeah, that's really interesting because I'll be honest, I don't think many people know that neoconservatism has its roots, you know, in Communism, if you took it, look at Trotskyism, I, I don't think many people would understand that at all. I didn't know that even before. So kind of branching on that, how, how did neocons, the neocons break away from classical conservatism as in how did they change the culture of the Republican Party as in how did they get, you know, most of the people who identified as conservatives and in a very different ideology, how do they get them to convert over, like culturally, ideologically, to support the neocons? Since they are very contradictory, it was it. Did they did they play off the like the disgust of the counterculture, or how did that shift take place in the minds of most conservatives? Well, um, as you said, I, I don't think a lot of people know who, who the neocons are, uh, including a lot of rank-and-file conservatives. I know a lot of people who vote Republican faithfully, who watch Fox News faithfully and identify as conservatives. They have no idea who the neocons are. They know nothing of this history. But the neoconservatives were able to take over the Republican Party and the conservative movement, largely just through sheer ruthlessness. I mean, one was that they were better at organizing. They were... You know, they had learned communist organizing tactics from their time as Trotskyites and as, and as Marxists. Um, you know, and that's a whole other story, you know, but Marxists are really the master when it comes to uh, 
the uh, organizing tactics and, and methods of uh, entering and, and taking over other organizations and things of that nature. Uh, another thing is that the uh, neoconservatives were very big on buttering themselves up to the uh, big Republican donors and forming alliances with the uh, uh, the big corporate donors that fund uh, the conservative movement and the Republican Party. Uh, a lot of it has to do with their relationship with the Israeli lobby. The Israel lobby is a very uh, powerful and influential uh, sector of U.S. politics, and their views, uh, you know, the views of IPAC and all of that certainly overlap with those of the uh, neoconservatives when it comes to Middle East policy. Uh, the relationship between the neocons and the uh, military-industrial complex is important because the military-industrial complex is such a wealthy and, and uh, powerful uh, apparatus. Uh, now, on a more grassroots level, um, the one, one way in which the neocons did this was by appealing to moral conservatism, the religious right and social conservatism and things like that. Um, another way, is, well, another issue there too is that the neocons were always big on trying to record um, the religious right, not only because they wanted them as a, a socially conservative constituency, but also because so much of the religious right is so pro-Israel. That's that's uh, too, that's a, uh, an area where the neocons and the religious right really overlap. Uh, that was very much an, uh, an alliance of convenience. Um, but the uh, neocons also would appeal to things like old-fashioned patriotism, you know, uh, American exceptionalism. That's a that's a big part of the neocon um, line. You know, uh, uh, the, uh, the America. Uh, they they essentially have a view of the United States in the sense of it being a revolutionary nation. Uh, the idea that uh, the United States should export uh, liberalism and democracy. I mean, liberalism broadly defined and, and democracy and all of that to the rest of the world. I mean, that's what they were trying to do in Iraq. The, the neocons were, you know, the architects of the war in Iraq, and they had this idea that they could just go in and, and uh, get rid of Saddam Hussein, and the Iraqis would become uh, like Scandinavians or something like that. Which you know, anyone that had any knowledge of that area, that region, would know that that wouldn't have worked. Uh, but that's the worldview that these people have. Uh, it's a very similar point of view to the, the, uh, the to what the Marxists have about you know their view of human nature and culture and things like that. Um, so I, I would argue that the neocons were able to take over the, the conservative movement and the Republican Party just by sheer manipulation and and, they, and, they, and sheer ruthlessness and infiltration and uh, you know brown nosing the right people and uh, you know the same that the, the, and using all the tactics they learned when they were communists. Yeah, it um, makes a lot of sense, especially when you take into account that most conservatives have no idea that the neocons that run, well, that were running the party were, were you know, communists for the most part. So I think if they learned that, you know, that'd be quite a red pill for many of them to swallow. Um, another question, how are, are neocons, I mean, we kind of answered this, they are communists, are are they pretty much status? I mean, when you look at their policies, such as their free trade deals, uh, interventionist wars, you know, they do use the welfare state, even though, you know, they still are ripping a lot, you know, comparatively, they're not really giving that much to the poorer classes, but they still, you know, corporate welfare, especially, but they're still giving some welfare state, which is kind of in opposition to more conservatism and libertarianism, which is a more hands-off approach. So, I mean, they're pretty much status, yeah. Yeah, the neocons are very status. They're very state-centric. They could care less about libertarianism. In fact, they're adamantly opposed to libertarianism. 
and even small government conservatism they don't have much use for. They, uh, they have no problem with the welfare state. They, they consider uh, FDR and LBJ and guys like that to be among their heroes. Um, they, um, they are not zealously pro-welfare state. They're not like the, the social democrats who want to perpetually expand the welfare state. You know, they're, they're for a moderate welfare state, um, but they're not anti-welfare state. Um, as far as their views on, on big business and big capital, they don't really care that much about economics in that sense. But they, what they do care about, though, is keeping corporate money coming in in order to fund their own activities. So, of course, they take positions on a lot of economic policies that are going to uh, be uh, of benefit and of interest to their corporate donors. And that, in turn, uh, explains why the neocons are so zealously in favor of all these corporatist trade policies like uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership or the uh, NAFTA and everything like that, that whole uh, trade apparatus has been put together. But all of that is a means to an end. That's that's not really something that they have as, as an ideal unto itself. Now, their, their corporate benefactors care about that stuff, but they don't. Um, the... Uh, as far as their view on statism in a wider sense, you know, keep in mind that the neocons are arch imperialists. They have a worldview that envisions a type of pox Americana. You know, essentially they want America to be like the Roman Empire. They want the Amer America to rule the world, and they want it to be done uh, to be to rule the world in the name of American supposed American interest and, and also the interest of Israel and, and all of that. Uh, and they justify this in the name of a type of revolutionary liberal uh, democracy, you know, kind of a, almost like a Napoleonic outlook. You know, the N Napoleonic Wars were supposedly the, a situation where the, the French were spreading the Enlightenment to uh, benighted Europe. And that's a very similar outlook to the neocons who view themselves as spreading Western liberal democracy towards the you know, benighted rest of the world, particularly the Islamic world. Um, you know, and of course, all these wars for liberalism against Islam just happen to be of benefit to Israel as well. Um, and of course, they just happen to be of benefit to the military industrial complex and the you know, U.S. corporate class and the American empire at a more general level. Uh, so that's really what the uh, neocons are today. I mean, they're simply arch imperialists. They're opportunistic uh, ideologues who are in, a, in the league with the military industrial complex and the corporate class uh, purely for cynical reasons. Um, I, as far as their own ideology, I think that from what I've observed of the neocons, uh, the only thing they, a lot of them really seem to care about is Israel. Uh, because so many of them are Jewish, they tend to be very strong Israeli nationalists. Um, that's certainly, that was certainly true of Irving Kristol. He's deceased now, but, but uh, that's certainly true of Bill Kristol. That's certainly true of Norman von Horitz. Um, a lot of the leading neocon ideologues that you see in, in the uh, newspapers as newspaper columnists or in uh, or on Fox News, like Charles Krauthammer, for example. I mean, Charles Krauthammer specifically describes himself as an Israeli nationalist. Um, David Horowitz, who runs Front Page Magazine, he's a, he's a neocon. He's a little extreme. I mean, he's you know, he's a, he's extreme even by neocon standards. But he essentially has the outlook, that kind of outlook. He's an Israeli uh, Israel firster. Now, uh, so that's one. Thing that really is a driving force between a lot of the neoconservatives. Um, now, not all neoconservatives are Jewish. There are some neoconservatives that, or some, there were some intellectuals that threw in their lot with the neoconservatives for other reasons, uh, largely because they tended to be, you know, perhaps um, uh, similar to the neocons, but they were, you know, social democrats who were also social conservatives, like uh, Michael Novak, who died recently. 
Uh, he was a well-known intellectual in neoconservative circles. He was a Catholic. Uh, he was a former leftist who became a Catholic, and he was so, you know, sort of a champion of a type of moderate social democratic liberal capitalism with a socially conservative, you know, quote unquote, Judeo-Christian bent, you know, pro-life and against gay rights and all that kind of stuff. Um, you have uh, guys like that in neoconservative circles as well. There was another fellow by the name of Father Richard John Newhouse. He's deceased as well, but he was a former uh, Lutheran pastor who was also a political leftist who um, became a, a type of neoconservative, largely in opposition to the new left. And he was the same way. He was very you know, pro-life and all of these kinds of things. Um, he edited, he edited the First Things magazine, which is uh, sort of a neocon uh, magazine oriented towards the religious community. Uh, he was another example. Now, another well-known uh, neocon was William J. Bennett. He was the uh, Secretary of Education under uh, President Reagan. He was the head of the War on Drugs. The uh, drugs are under uh, President Reagan, and he was also a uh, a uh, former uh, liberal Democrat who became a neocon, um, and he, he, he's widely known as being a huckster. But uh, you know, the, the, the uh, neocon movement attracted a lot of these kinds of people. I like how you said they are opportunists because it seems like they're masters at exploiting crises. And I would even I would even argue that manufacturing them and then exploiting them, whether that's well, you know in the Middle East, whether that's the police state at home, uh, whether that's, you know, false flag attacks. Personally, I think that they're one of the factions that are manufacturing those. But um, what are the, I wanted to touch a little bit on, now we talked last time about how neoliberalism is kind of like the economic engine behind globalism. And it seems that neocons are kind of the muscle behind globalism, that if anyone steps in line with the economic agenda, then the muscle is there. It seems like the neocons and, and the neoliberals work hand in hand with each other. So I wanted to touch on that and then also kind of just briefly touch on how neoconservatism has affected Western democracies and how it's affected the developing world, particularly when it comes to war. Well. Neoconservatism uh, is fairly distinctive. Amer it's distinctively American. It has its roots in the American radical left of the 1930s. This whole trajectory I described earlier of former Trotskyites moving to the right over a period of decades. Um, there are tendencies in some other countries, uh, particularly the English-speaking countries, that are somewhat similar in the sense that they have a very similar uh, outlook in terms of geopolitics and things like that as the neocons do. Uh, but the neocons are really a distinctively American movement. Um, you know, they may have allies in other countries. Um, but they do fit in with this wider neoliberal paradigm. You could, you could, uh, the way you put it, uh, where you said the neocons are the muscle behind neoliberalism. And yeah, that's exactly right. This whole neoliberal economic paradigm that's been put in place since the end of the Cold War uh, is something that has had the support of the ruling classes in all of the developed countries for the most part, uh, including those that are so supposedly on the so-called left. If you look at uh, the European countries, for example, you see that the, the Labour Party in England, the Socialists in France, the Social Democrats in Germany, uh, all of these, the, the Social Democrats in Sweden, all of these parties 
have played right into the neoliberal agenda. And remember that it was really Bill Clinton. You know, the Democrats are what America has uh, as the supposed left-wing party, but uh, it was really Bill Clinton's administration that really um, put neoliberalism in, into place. Um, so the entire apparatus of the Western ruling classes pretty much are in favor of this neoliberal paradigm. Um, but neoconservatism has been the military force behind uh, neoliberalism. Um, and what neoconservatism has tried to do is essentially eradicate independent nations or movements around the world that resist being incorporated into neoliberalism. Uh, back during the George W. Bush era, they used to talk about this axis of evil. You know, all of these nations that formed an axis of evil, which was Saddam Hussein's Iraq, uh, North Korea, um, uh, Iran, uh, and a number of others. And if you look at what all these nations had in common, they all what they had in common was their refusal to be incorporated into what's called the Washington Consensus. You know, the Washington Consensus is this idea that neoliberalism is going to be uh, expanded throughout the world as a, and all, you know, the world markets are going to be integrated into this um, world economy, this global economy that's in turn managed by all of these international financial and trade organizations. And the United States is going to have uh, global hegemony um, as, as you know, a type of imperial order. And the uh, um, American military power is going to be used to enforce and maintain this system. Um, and the the so-called rogue states, the axis of evil, uh, those were all nations that refused to be incorporated into this. Uh, that's one of the, it's not the only reason, but it's one of the main reasons why uh, American foreign policy has been so zealous about trying to uh, engineer regime change in all of these different nations around the world, Iraq most obviously, but there have been others as well. There have been nations in Eastern Europe, nations in the Middle East. Uh, that the um, American uh, State Department has tried to subvert in various ways. And the reason why is to get rid of governments in various countries that refuse to be incorporated into the empire. Uh, you know, what they want is a lot of quizzlings. That's, that's what they're looking for. Those are the kinds of people they want in power in other, other nations. And the, um, the American military is really the strong arm behind that. Uh, you know, like all of these uh, coalitions that are always being put together, like in, uh, in, in when the Iraq war began, they had this coalition of the willing. And this coalition of the willing was this uh, you know, supposed alliance of nations that were going to war to liberate Iraq. But in reality, it was just an American invasion uh, of Iraq. And some of these other you know, nations signed on to this as you know, junior partners or minor shareholders or whatever. But it was really an act of American invasion and essentially of Iraq and essentially setting up a puppet government. Um, and um, that is you know, a lot of these color coded revolutions that have happened, um, you know, the orange revolution, the whatever purple revolution that have happened in all of these places. That's the same thing. That's the American State Department trying to engineer uh, a coup in various countries in order to install a regime that is more favorable to the Washington consensus. Um, a lot of so-called counterterrorism or counterinsurgency programs are about trying to eradicate um, movements around the world that you know, may not be connected to any particular state or, or independent of any particular state, but are resisting being incorporated into this system as well. 
you know, that that is really the, the essence of American foreign policy. It's about extending and maintaining the American empire by eliminating regimes that refuse to be incorporated into the empire and re, uh, eliminating insurgent movements that refuse to be incorporated into the empire. Um, you know, terrorism obviously is a, is a smokescreen for that. You know, the, uh, if, you, if you look at uh, what the, the real roots of uh, the, the conflict between the West and the Islamic world in terms of terrorism, a lot of that is an outgrowth of this. A lot of that is an outgrowth. I mean, it's, it's a very complex situation. But a lot of it is an outgrowth of, on one hand, the um, Islamic world resisting being incorporated into this global system based on the Washington Consensus. On the other hand, it's also uh, been fueled by the West because the West has generally chosen to uh, support Islamic fundamentalist movements in the Middle East in, 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 uh, as a bulwark against secular Arab nationalist movements. You know, they, they would much rather have a Muslim Brotherhood than a, than a Nasser or or the Ba'ath Party or something like that. Uh, so, and the neoconservatives really are the you know the strong arm behind all of this. Yeah, I would agree, and I would I would touch on the point that I think there's a big overlap between not just neocons but the globalists in general and the Muslim Brotherhood and the whole destruction of the Middle East. I think there's a massive overlap. You, you can especially see that with Hillary Clinton, uh, especially through Huma Abedin, but I'll digress on that. But I think that, that you do see a lot of interconnections there. I wanted to touch really quick on J George H.W. Bush. And would you consider him kind of one of the first kind of prominent neocons to gain major power and kind of a turning point in the Republican conservatism movement kind of going towards um, the neoconservative, especially with his adoption of the UN and kind of a turning point to towards internationalism over nationalism, which was the what my understanding is that conservatism was always about, which much more protect your country, you know, more of a libertarian type perspective, nationalism, as opposed to what George W. H. W was going more towards a internationalism. Obviously, he still had the American hegemony as the head of it, but but um, kind of that shift there. Well, no, uh, George W. Bush was, George H. W. Bush uh, was not a neoconservative. Uh, he was just an old fashioned Rockefeller Republican. He was a Rockefeller internationalist Republican. Um, you know, he was uh, part of the elite, part of the uh, traditional American elite. Now, it was during his time as the vice president and then later as president that the neocons started working their way into the Republican Party, into the conservative movement, into the Reagan and then later George H.W. Bush administrations. So he did form uh, a kind of, I guess you could say, an alliance of convenience with the neocons, but he was never really one of them. Uh, in fact, there were conflicts between him and the neocons during his administration, uh, particularly over Middle East policy. Uh, on a number of issues, um, at the same time, you know, in, in his State Department and all of that, uh, there was a uh, a neocon presence. Certain, uh, certainly, and before that, I mentioned uh, earlier. I mentioned uh, Elliot Abrams and people like that. But George H. W. Bush was never any kind of conservative. He was not a movement conservative person, and, and you know, the Buckleyites and all that. And he certainly wasn't a neoconservative. He was just a Rockefeller Republican. You know, he became a Reaganite conservative in the 80s out of convenience because he wanted to be on the ticket as, as uh, Ronald Reagan's vice presidential candidate. You know, after he, he had tried to be the nominee himself and then he didn't make it. So 
the next best thing was to be Reagan's running mate. So suddenly he's a he's a Reaganite conservative. Um, that you know he was just a career politician, uh, George H. W. Bush. Um, so it's, it's inappropriate to call him a neoconservative, but it's all it, it is true though that it was during his time that these neoconservatives start to really carve out a position for themselves. Uh, parallel to that, though, is that it was under George H. W. Bush that the uh, Soviet Union disappeared. You know, the Soviet Union fell apart, and that was the end of the Cold War. So that really created the opportunity for the American Empire to go global, whereas prior to that, it was constrained by the Soviet Union. Uh, and George H. W. Bush, you know, presided over that, and his objectives, you know, as a as a Rockefeller internationalist. And the neoconservatives, as, as full-blown, uh, you know, imperialists, uh, converged. So they had they, they tended to share very similar views on, on many foreign policy and geopolitical issues. You know, they were both certainly for setting up the global trade system that's identified with uh, NAFTA and uh, you know the World Bank, the uh, the WTO, and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, there there are differences as well, though. Uh, the, the neocon, the main one being the neocons are rabid Zionists, whereas George H. W. Bush wasn't. Okay, well, I'm glad we cleared that up. Um, now let's move kind of more present. Who who would you consider the neoconservatives today, and kind of what policies are they pushing? It sounds like they're pushing the same policies. And going further, have the neocons infiltrated Trump's cabinet? Especially, I guess, when you look at you know, different Zionists who might have infiltrated Trump's cabinet. So maybe touch on on neocon movement today. Um, well, the neocons today, if you want to know who and where they are, um, they have plenty of websites and magazines you can read and you can see exactly what they're saying. You know, Commentary Magazine is still around. National Review is still around. That's a full neocon magazine now and has been for years. Um, Weekly Standard is still around. There's plenty of uh, publications that are, that are neocon oriented that are essentially in-house neocon journals. Uh, if you watch Fox News, many, many, many of the commentators that come on, particularly with foreign policy issues, are full-blown neocons, Charles Krauthammer and people like that, for example. Uh, and they're, you know, they control virtually all of the major Republican-oriented think tanks, the American uh, Enterprise Institute, the Heritage Foundation, and all of that. Uh, you know, they, they dominate the whole alliance that constitutes the conservative movement. Um, now, as far as their relationship with Donald Trump, uh, they uh, were very, very upset when Donald Trump entered the Republican Party. You know, Donald Trump was essentially uh, an independent candidate who ran for office uh, as a Republican. Um, that's how David Brooks who was also a, a leading neocon journalist. That's how David Brooks described uh, Donald Trump, and I think he's accurate about that. You know, Donald Trump really uh, was not a, a, a conventional Republican. He just uh, became a Republican out, out of convenience, just like Bernie Sanders became a Democrat out of convenience. But what happened was that Trump entered the Republican Party, and his movement, the Trump movement, essentially take took over the Republican Party. They pushed the traditional Republicans and the neocons to the, to the margins in the Republican Party. Um, and the neocons are still reeling from this. You know, they're still uh, debating among themselves how they're going to handle this issue of, of having been essentially kicked to the curb by the Trumpians. Uh, you know, some of them, um, at least early on, developed uh, the whole uh, concept of the never Trump movement. Like whenever you see these memes being circulated uh, by the people on the on the right, uh, you know, among Republicans who are saying never Trump. 
Uh, that's them. That's the neocons. You know, there, there were some never Trumpers among the, the neocons. There were others that kind of threw in their lot with Trump saying, okay, well, it's the best we've got. Uh, there are others, of course, that are, you know, now that Trump is in office, they've been uh, vying to get uh, positions uh, of their, getting get appointed to important positions. Um, so, but they're, but they're still, you know, they're still trying to figure out how they're going to adjust to this whole Trump situation. Uh, they don't like the fact that Trump has taken over the Republican Party. They don't like the fact that they've been marginalized in the Republican Party because of it. Some of them, some of the more radical ones have a policy of non-cooperation with Trump. Others are just trying to, you know, brown nose the Trump administration. Some are just looking at it like it's a lesser of the evils. Uh, so it's, it's really good. remains to be seen what's going to happen there. Uh, I, I think probably the most significant thing that has happened um, with regards to um, the relationship between the neocons and Trump is the appointment of John Bolton to the number two position at the State Department. I, I do think that's interesting. Um, John Bolton is a leading neocon ideologue, has been for years, um, extremely hawkish to the point of fanaticism on foreign policy. Uh, there was initially some talk of him being appointed uh, to the position of Secretary of State. But interestingly, though, the, the man that was appointed to the Secretary of State position, Rex Tillerson, the former uh, CEO of Exxon, seems to be way outside the neocon paradigm. Uh, I think that the what what Rex Tillerson seems to be representing, and I think this is true of the Trump's administration's foreign policy team generally, is they represent another position that's outside of the either the neocon perspective or the kind of liberal internationalist perspective that dominates the Democrats. Uh, Tillerson, uh, for example, is uh, advocates a, a, a reproachment between the United States and Russia. Uh, I think the reason for that is there are two reasons. One is to um, cultivate Russia as a Western ally against the, uh, Asia and against the Islamic world on a geopolitical sense. And the other is also to expand trade relations with Russia with regards to the petroleum industry. And you know, as CEO of Exxon, it makes sense that Tillerson would, would have a, an outlook like that. Um, but I also think that the appointment of Bolton to the number two position in the Republican Party is interesting because, I mean, in the, in, the, in the State Department is interesting because that seems to be a kind of capitulation to the neocons. That seems to be um, a matter of the of the Trump administration saying, okay, we've got all of these different Republican constituencies. We need to you know, throw a bone to this one or that one. You know, I think, but I think Mike Pence is the bone that they threw the religious right, and I think uh, uh, John Bolton is the bone that they threw to the um, um, neoconservatives in foreign policy. Um, now, just like uh, Jeff Session, he, he represents the anti-immigration movement. Um, so that's really where things stand now. You know, Trump hasn't been in office long enough to, for us to really see how the relationship between the Trump and the neocons is going to play out. Um, one thing that we have to consider is that there are some uh, tendencies, some neocon tendencies that are that are more radical than others. Um, you know, the, you have the um, neo, the, the, I guess you could say the mainstream neocons, the people at National Review, the people at Weekly Standard, many of the commentators on Fox News. You know, they are the standard hawkish foreign policy, pro corporatism in, in economics. Uh, you know. Uh, not not necessarily conservative on social issues, but not liberal either. Uh, and then you have people like Dennis Prager, like David Horowitz at Front Page Magazine, who are more rapid neocons. Or and also this is a point of view you see on Breitbart as well. 
there's a strand within the neocons that are rabidly anti-Islam, um, you know, even more so than the conventional neocons. And they're almost like the counter-jihadi movement that you see in some of the European countries. You know, like uh, uh, if, you, if you ever read the Gates of Vienna uh, website, for example, or look at politicians like uh, Garrett Wilders in the Netherlands. Um, there is a, a faction of the, of the neocons that represents this kind of perspective, this kind of rabid anti-Islamism. In fact, Steve Bannon seems to have some leanings in that direction as well. It's, I think it's inappropriate to call him a neocon, but but uh, he, he certainly overlaps with them on a lot of ways. Uh, but again, we don't really, you know, it's, Trump hasn't been in office long enough for us to really tell how this is going to play out. So it's going to be interesting to see what kind of trajectory all of this follows. Yeah, definitely will be interesting. I, I was encouraged that there was a lot of talk actually about Elliot Abrams joining the Trump administration. Uh, I believe something was in this. Um, I think it was even for Michael Flynn's position, but that that kind of went away. Or or maybe it was in the State Department. I can't quite remember. Maybe it was actually John Bolton's position. But but yeah, it will be interesting to see how that all comes to fruition. Especially when you look at the Zionist angle. Trump seems to be pretty pro-Israel um, and Zionist, and then you look at their potential uh, warmongering with Iran, that, you know, we know that Israel has been, you know, long had a plan to to try to break up Iran or to, you know, have a war with Iran. So that's that seems, to my opinion, to be capitulating to the neocons a little bit on that part of the agenda. But you could also, I guess, look at it in the anti-Islam, even though, you know, we're supporting <laughs> The countries that are probably the worst when it comes to radical Islam, especially with Wahhabism coming predominantly out of Saudi Arabia. So that's a whole contradiction in itself. But uh, last question, how do we, because I always like to end on something that we can do, you know, something a little bit more positive. How can we stop the neocons? What 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 can we do? I, I, I mean, I'm assuming, you know, the most important thing and the reason we're doing this podcast is to get people more informed so they can identify when someone is a neocon and, and call them out for different policies. But how would you say the best way to stop uh, the neocons and their some of their disastrous policies? Well, like you said, the main thing is to know who they are, and many people don't. Uh, outside of people that are serious, uh, who have a serious interest in political ideologies and movements and philosophies, or people that are just flat out political junkies. Most people have no idea who, these, who the neocons are. Uh, they don't know the, the background and the story of this particular movement and, and everything they've done in the past. Um, so I think that the main thing is just exposure, uh, getting uh, out the word out as to who these people are. Um, beyond that, I think that whenever any administration, whether it's a Democrat or Republican administration, tries to appoint any of these people to anything important, uh, the, the public needs to raise hell about it. You know, they, they need to get as upset about it as the uh, NRA gets upset about gun control or the right to pro-choice people get upset about restrictions on abortion. You know, I mean, this needs to be, there needs to be an anti-neocon movement uh, where um, anytime one of these people that gets anywhere near power, the, uh, the other people have something to say about it. You know, me, people in the media need to know who these people are and criticize them when they, you um, uh, achieve positions of power, you know, people on the grassroots level, there needs to be um, a movement that understands who these people are. And, and there are people who do this. I mean, the, a lot of the libertarians, like the anti-war paleo-libertarian, uh, you know, the Ron Paul, Justin Ramondo, Lou Rockwell circle, they're, they're very familiar, very knowledgeable 
about about all of this. And you have some people on the far left, like the serious anti-war left, like Counterpunch Magazine and some of those people. Uh, they they understand all of this as well. Uh, but that's not. Oh, and the and the some of the paleo conservatives, like uh, the uh, American conservative, they're very knowledgeable on this issue. But most people aren't. Uh, this this isn't an issue that really gets debated in mainstream politics. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I, and I would go further and say that's because the mainstream media is so, so, so controlled on many, you know, they're basically, yep. in my opinion, a mouthpiece for globalists in general, whether that's neoliberals or neoconservatism. And, you know, w you know, obviously the Fox News plays more to the neocons and CNN plays more to the neoliberals. But, we, you know, when we have interventionist wars, they're both supporting them. They're both supporting this America exceptionalism. So, like you know, as with almost all issues, not just neoconservatism, but all you know, a lot of our issues is 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 knowledge and, and and changing the media. And I think that's why I'm really encouraged by the alternative media, or I would call it more the independent media. Now, I'm trying to scrap that term. Alternative media seems like it's an alternative. No, it's kind of the independent and or truth media. So I, I'm, I'm encouraged to see this transformation in media happening, and hopefully that will help stomp out some of these radical ideologies that we see that have taken root over the, you know, especially the last couple hundred years. But well, uh, one, yeah, go one, ahead, Keith, maybe the last point. Yeah, one thing I'd add to that is that the so-called mainstream conservative press is neocon control to the, to the max. Uh, you know, Fox News is a neocon propaganda outlet. That's why it exists. Uh, many of the papers, uh, this, the leading conservative papers, uh, uh, journalistic outlets are funded and controlled by the neocons, National Review, Weekly Standard. Uh, uh, the, the, they also have control over the Wall Street Journal uh, and over a number of prominent newspapers of that type. Uh, they, the, the so-called talk radio, conservative talk radio, Rush Limbaugh and all that stuff, that, that stuff is, is full-on neocon propaganda. You know, that's, all of those outlets take the, exactly the positions that the neocons want them to take on foreign policy and economics for the most part, uh, certainly on foreign policy. Um, now, as far as the, the rest of the media, um, you know, the New York Times, Washington Post, um, you know, the other television networks, the CBS, NBC, uh, ABC, MSNBC, CNN, they're not neocon control, but they do um, uh, capitulate to the neocons on a lot of things. The, one of the reasons for that is that the a lot of the elite, liberal elite, actually like the neocons because they view them as the moderate conservatives. The neocons are tend to be refined, educated, urban, cosmopolitan people. They are, you know, relative upper class people. Uh, they're they're not, you know, crude racists. You know, they're not uh, you know, reactionary. You know, backwoods, Bible banging, holy rollers. You know, they're they're not the kind of conservatives that the liberal elites hate. You know, the, the, most of the neoconservatives could care less about homosexuals. A lot of them care less about abortion. You know, they're not interested. They don't they don't generally have much of a problem with immigration. You know, so they're not social conservatives. You know, they're not they're not that kind of nativist, nationalist, populist type of conservative. And that's why the liberal elites will actually recognize these people as being, you know, the good guy conservatives, you know, the moderate conservatives. That's why they have someone like David Brooks, for example, who's a full-blown neocon ideologue. That's why they'll have someone like him writing from the for the New York Times 
or being presented on PBS as, you know, the moderate conservative, the reasonable conservative. Yeah, that's actually a good point. You know, they they pretty much, in my opinion, they both agree on big money. <laughs> you know, they come together, you know, they actually need, I think they've realized they need each other. The neocons and the neoliberals need each other so they both can make a lot of money and, and keep control of the country. And I would even call these two entities, they just, in my opinion, they're, they're globalists for the most part. Um, very internationalists, whether that's intervention militarily or economically, it's really goes hand in hand in the same thing. So, and I, and I think these, these two ideologies more than anything else are the most important to, to identify because they're really the ones I think that hold the most power. Yeah, there are other wedge issues, but those aren't really the ones pulling the major strings, you know, when it comes to economic policy or or foreign foreign policy, especially when you talk about neoconservatives. So I think these two these people that are really hardcore ideologues in these two categories really need to be exposed more than anything else. Yes. But um Keith really enjoyed the conversation. I you know, I actually learned a lot about neoconservatism by listening to you and also researching it before. I had no idea that it had its roots, like I said, in Trotskyism. So uh, really appreciate you having on, or having you on today. Um, and wow. next week, uh, I hope people tune in. We're going to hopefully talk about anarchism, which I know for a lot of people is um, an important topic, especially in the alternative media circles. But uh, do you have a last point, Keith, before I... Uh, Close it well, here. Yeah, just if you want to know more about me, you can go to our website at attackthesystem.com, um, and then there's a you know a lot of articles and essays on that website to deal with all kinds of issues, including some of the ones we talked about today, uh, as well as links to other pages with, with similar issues. Um, and also, there's just a um, a lot of uh, discourse there between you know alternative uh, political perspectives that you don't really see in many other media outlets. Uh, there's a, there's a, a backlog of podcasts that I've done in the past where I talk about a lot of these things. You can listen to those as well. So all of that's available for, for public viewing and public listening for anyone who's interested. That's attackthesystem.com. Uh, I've also written about half a dozen books dealing with these kinds of issues like we've been talking about today. Uh, you can order those from the website as well at attackthesystem.com. Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and link that up in the show notes. Yeah, do check that out. Uh, as Keith said, it's a great way to discuss a great way a great place to discuss political theory as he said before because you know you're getting a lot of different perspectives and people who have studied political theory a little bit more so you get a little bit more of a uh, people who know what they're talking about or at least you know have some strong points as opposed to other people who haven't really studied it as much so definitely do check that out it's a great website but um keith thanks for having you on it's been great and um we'll do it again next week okay see you then Take all right, take care.